Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kredenitsa, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Tuesday, June 28th, 2023. This episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English since 1933 for the global Ukrainian community. Our guest today is Professor Alexander Martil. He is a professor of political science at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and also an expert on Soviet and post-Soviet politics. And our topic today is the rebellion of Yevgeny Prigozhin, which occurred over last weekend in Russia, the weekend of June 23rd and 24th. Welcome, Alex. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. To start off with, can you just give a, a brief summary of your professional background for those in the audience who might not know you? Well, uh, PhD in political science at Columbia University. My specialization was Soviet studies, more specifically Soviet nationality studies, most specifically Ukraine, Soviet Ukraine, as it was then called. And since then, I've kept up, kept up my interest in the Soviet Union, as well as in Ukraine and Russia, while also focusing on things like revolutionary change, upheavals, nationalism, and things of that sort. I also write novels, I paint, I write some poetry, but <laughs> that's a topic for another conversation. To start off with, can you provide our audience with some history about Yevgeny Prigozhin, the chief of the mercenary Wagner group? He's, he's about 61 or 62 years old, born in 60, 1961, thereabouts. Spent something like eight, nine, or possibly even 10 years in the Soviet jail for robbery and for in, including young people in his criminal offenses. So this is a guy who's essentially a con, not necessarily a con man, although possibly that too, but certainly a con. Um, he outcons Yanukovych, who only spent a few years. Um, and then after having come out, the guy proved to be extremely resilient and extremely resourceful. He has a kind of Horatio Alger, Alger quality to him. He's a self-made man, went into the uh, restaurant business and signed a whole bunch of lucrative contracts with the Russian state to provide them with food. In 2014, during the uh, invasion of Ukraine, um, he established the Wagner Group. Um, he denied having anything to do with it until September, October of last year, even though everybody kind of knew that he was involved. And since then, his primary claim to fame has been that of head of the Wagner Group, which is a private military company, quote unquote, if you prefer mercenaries, if you prefer hired thugs. They've been active in Syria as well as in Central Africa. They've engaged in war crimes. I mean, that's no secret. Uh, so technically, he's a war criminal, even before anything he did in Ukraine. And at the same time, they are in possession of gold mines, a variety of other kinds of enterprises in Africa. And Prigozhin himself is apparently has assets in the range of about $15 billion. So the guy is no slouch. So what has been his role in Ukraine during the Russian invasion? Well, the Wagner Group was deployed near or in near and or in Bakhmut, 
something like nine months ago. Um, and he's in charge. And his task was to capture the city of Bakhmut. And he did, ultimately. But it took him something like nine months to do that. At the same time, his losses were enormous. During the fighting, he was able to persuade the Russian authorities to draft inmates of prisons. Apparently, something like forty to 50,000 volunteered. Um, and something like 80% of that money, of that number were killed in action because they were essentially used as cannon fodder. But a good percentage of the Wagner mercenaries were also killed and were wounded. And at this point in time, the group has been hammered, let's put it that way, by the Ukrainian forces. And that's been his role. Now, eventually, they did capture Bakhmut. Uh, in the process, he was complaining about not getting enough ammunition, not getting enough supplies from the Ministry of Defense. There's probably truth to that. I mean, some of it is just logistical difficulties. But at the same time, as he was waging this conflict in Bakhmut, waging the war in Bakhmut, uh, he started getting a little too large for his britches and making all sorts of critical comments about the Minister of Defense, about the general staff, and then obliquely about Putin as well. So it's very likely, indeed, it's almost certainly the case that they in general, or the Ministry of Defense in particular, tried to muzzle him and perhaps to weaken his forces. After all, if you think about it, the fact that the leading military unit within the Russian military constellation happened to consist of private mercenaries is really an indication of the fact that Russia is becoming a failed state. The normal term for that kind of stuff is warlords. And essentially, Pogosian became a warlord. Um, he's not the only one because the Chechen leader, Kadyrov, also has a private army of about 10,000. Uh, so when you consider that there are at least two private armies that are fairly sizable, there's something like two score other ones, but they're very small. All this suggests that the Russian military is losing control over the fighting. Uh, that's no good. So one can understand their desire to muzzle the Prigozhin as well as to muzzle the Wagner group. And it's as a result of that, at least that's one of the consequences, that he decided to march on Moscow. Uh, there are other reasons for that, other probably overriding reasons, but we can talk about those when you ask that question. Let's focus on last weekend, specifically June 23rd through 25th. Uh, do you think Prigozhin set out to actually launch a coup in Russia? And if so, why would he turn his army back at the last minute as they were heading to Moscow? You know, there are something like, I've encountered something like 30 or 40 different theories and explanations, each of which is, you know, more or less plausible. So, you know, I certainly don't have the definitive answer to that particular question, Prigozhin says in a statement that he made a few days ago that his intent was exclusively to highlight the Wagner Group's plight and to reverse the Ministry of Defense's decision to close it down. That seems a little disingenuous because, after all, it would have taken a while to organize this kind of march. We do know that the Wagner Group has close ties with the GRU, that's the Military Intelligence Unit. 
We do know that the army put up no resistance while Prigozhin's people were marching. We also may know, as you may have heard and as you may have seen in today's New York Times, that one of uh, Putin's key generals, Suvikin, who was always on Prigozhin's side, appears to have known about his planned march. So all of this suggests that this wasn't just an innocuous statement on the part of a disgruntled uh, soldier, that he actually had some political and military ambitions, which would have focused, per, if not on actually seizing power and removing Putin, at least establishing some kind of power base. So why did he turn back? Uh, there again, his explanation is, well, he saw that bloodshed was approaching and he didn't want to shed Russian blood. Well, that's totally crazy. I think we can dismiss that because this is the same group that apparently shot down seven Russian helicopters in one Russian plane for a total number of casualties, somewhere between 14 and 20. So clearly, <laughs> you know, shedding Russian blood wasn't a prime consideration. What the respected analysts suggest, and I'm inclined to agree with them, is that there was an expectation on their part that as he's marching along, additional army units would join up so that the several thousand that were marching along this road toward Moscow would be augmented and eventually become several tens of thousands. That didn't seem to happen. Now, did that happen because the military decided they were going to take advantage of Prigozhin's adventure in order to make a point and then leave him out to dry? Did it happen because the military and the GRU said, uh, we don't really want to start a civil war because that's not going to be to our advantage? That's anybody's guess. Clearly, he didn't do it from the goodness of his heart. It's not because he was concerned about Russian blood or anybody's blood having shed so much of it over the last nine to 10 months, it's obviously had something to do with the calculus um, of you know, what was taking place and the risks involved. Alex, do you think there will be any changes in the Russian Ministry of Defense with the Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and the Chief of the General Staff Valery Gerasimov? And if so, who do you think might succeed them? Well, I think for the time being, probably not. You know, uh, things are complicated enough uh, in the Russian political system. Putin is obviously under assault. He's obviously been weakened. Um, he is. He knows who his prime enemy is, and that's Prigozhin. Uh, one of his other enemies may be within the GRU, um, According to the Times, another, a third enemy might be Sylvikin. But when you consider that Putin has accumulated so large a number of manifest enemies, I mean, people who seem to be, who, who've essentially said, we don't support you. Oh, and when you add to the list, the fact that fewer than half of the members of the Security Council in Russia, the people who kowtow to Putin on February 23rd, and essentially accepted his decision to invade Ukraine, less than half, fewer than half of these individuals came out in support of Putin during the coup attempt. This is tremendously significant. Clearly, they are either opposed to Putin or they're fence-sitting, but they're clearly no longer the kind of enthusiasts that they were over a year ago. Anyway, when you consider all of these complications, 
my bet would be that he would say, well, I, you know, life is complicated enough. I've got to figure out how to retain my authority, perhaps augment my authority. Um, and the last thing I need is another major shakeup of guys who've essentially been on my side. Uh, they may be incompetent. And I think, well, they are incompetent. Certainly, Grigozhin was right to say that. But of course, we've known that, and Putin has presumably known that for over a year as well. And that hasn't moved him to remove these two individuals. So to make a short story long, I'm inclined to think they're going to stick around for a while. And then we'll see. A lot will depend on the Ukrainian counteroffensive. If that goes badly, they will look good. If that goes well, for Ukraine, of course, uh, they will look even worse. And at that point, Putin may be impelled to do something. Alternatively, his enemies may finally decide that it's time for him to go and not just wait for Prigozhin to march again, but simply get rid of him in, you know, sort of in uh, gangland style. I wouldn't exclude that possibility. So what do you think will happen with Prigozhin and his Wagner troops? Have they been sent to Belarus to launch an attack on Kiev? Will they be absorbed into the Russian army? And do you think the Russian people support Prigozhin? Well, the last question first. I mean, most Russians weren't really aware of who Prigozhin was until these events. Uh, they get their news from state-run news outlets. Uh, most Russians don't follow the internet, so they wouldn't have known who Prigozhin is. But now they obviously do. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter what they think. Uh, what, what is significant, however, is two things. He seems to have enjoyed significant popular support in the two cities he occupied, especially Rostov. That's important. I mean, there weren't any Russians coming out and demonstrating against Prigozhin. Quite the opposite. There's video footage of Russians saying, uh, Wagner Sila, Wagner is a force, Wagner is strength. So they were clearly in support. Now, again, they may or may not be indicative of the entire population, but nevertheless, it's something. More importantly than the wider population is how the average Russian soldier thinks about Prigozhin, his mutiny, his coup attempt, and of course, what Prigozhin has been saying, because the soldiers know about Prigozhin. There's no question about that. Uh, many of them do have iPhones. Many of them listen to the internet. They follow Prigozhin on Telegram and YouTube. And they know what he's been saying, which is that the war is a disaster, that it was unnecessary. It was actually that it was concocted by Putin and, and a bunch of his cronies. And that they are being sacrificed on the altar of these fat cat bureaucrats whose sons and daughters are vacationing in the Arab Emirates while average Russians are dying on the Ukrainian front. So this can't possibly enhance morale. It may significantly decrease it, how much we don't know, but it certainly is not going to enhance morale. And that's bad for the Russians, it's great for the Ukrainians. The first part of your question, could you remind me? The troops and Prigozhin supposedly were sent to Belarus. Ah, yes, of course. They've been sent there to do an attack on Kiev from that location. Well, again, Putin gave them three choices, and one is to go home, uh, which is unlikely and probably undesirable for Putin because they will be disgruntled and armed. Two is to join the armed forces, which some of them presumably will do, 
And the third is to go to Belarus. Of course, if they choose to go to Belarus, they some of them will probably decide that it's time to hightail it back to Africa or the Middle East. Uh, so keep that in mind. Uh, at the same time, keep in mind that having 10, 20,000 disgruntled Wagnerites in barracks in Belarus with nothing to do except plot or re take revenge isn't exactly something that the Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko necessarily desires. Their presence does not enhance stability in Belarus. Uh, you know, after all, Prigozhin is a loose cannon. Uh, we have no idea what these soldiers might be up to. And Belarus's stability is extremely important to, uh, to Lukashenko because he knows that if and when the country becomes unstable, he's likely to be the first to be deposed. So will he want, will he permit, will he enable Prigozhin and his forces to in engage in some kind of military action involving Ukraine? My guess is that the answer is no. Again, it's a guess. I wouldn't want to be doctrinaire. It's not a resounding no. It's a kind of likely no. I just don't see what's in it for Lukashenko because it would mean that Belarus would get involved in the war. And once it does, he's likely to be overthrown. The other question is, can Wagner do much of anything if and when, say, 10 or 15,000 troops are, are, are moved to, uh, to Belarus? Can they really undertake some kind of damage vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine? And remember, the their heavy equipment, which is critical in any kind of battle, doesn't seem to be going with them to Belarus. They had planes, tanks, armored personnel carriers. Well, presumably that's going to be, that's either staying in places like Rostov or will be expropriated by the Ministry of Defense and the general staff. So you have a whole bunch of soldiers with guns without any clear plan. Does Putin want to send them into battle? I don't know. Does Lukashenko? Probably not. What's in it for Prigozhin um, to send his soldiers against hardened Ukrainian troops and incur even more casualties? I'm not sure that there's much of that either. What may be true, but again, this is just pure speculation, but this may not be the end of the Prigozhin story. Unless Putin decides to have him assassinated, which is very likely, um, you've got to imagine that someone like Prigozhin is at least somewhat angry at Putin and possibly angry at some of his backers in the military and the GRU. And it may be the case that he might at some point embark on a Napoleonic return. Uh, it could end up in a kind of Waterloo, or alternatively, he might be able to be more successful next time. In other words, we shouldn't write him off. Uh, he may still come to play a role, unless, of course, he's assassinated, in which case that would settle that. Alex, we're just about out of time, but I do have one final question. What effect do you think the Prigozhin rebellion will have on the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Will it help or hinder the current Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Prigozhin affair and everything that it's revealed about the brittleness of the Russian political regime, the divisions within the army, the demoralization, the confusion, the chaos, all of that is fantastic news for Ukraine. 
to put it very simply, but not inaccurately, the worse things are in Russia, the better they are for Ukraine. The worse the Russian military is, the better off Ukraine is. Consider the fact that Prigozhin did Ukraine an enormous favor by downing seven helicopters in a plane and probably killing something like 20 or so pilots. I mean, this is all one can say is go for it, Evgeny, keep up the good work. Uh, so, any, but, in, but the, the, the more important point, the more sober point, quite simply, is that chaos politically means a more difficult, a greater ability on the part of the Russian regime to make decisions, to follow up on decisions. Chaos within the military means it will be harder for the military to engage in activities of various kinds. So all of that is to be welcomed. And uh, certainly that's the way the Ukrainian general staff and Zelensky have perceived the last the events of the last weekend. And they're absolutely right. I wouldn't be surprised, although again, I'm not a military expert, so I want to underline that, but I wouldn't be surprised if Ukraine decides to take advantage of this confusion and you know, launch the counteroffensive. Uh, perhaps, well, again, I don't know whether they'll do it across the entire front or in particular regions, uh, but it's clearly, this would be a very opportune time. Now, whether it's opportune, time, opportune in terms of logistics, weather, and so on, that's a different question. And those, of course, are the overriding issues and concerns for the general staff in Ukraine. But clearly, this helps. This makes things easier. And the fact that this crisis ain't over it will continue in one form or other in the next weeks, months, possibly even longer. It may lead to the collapse of the Putin regime. It may lead to Putin's assassination. It could even lead to the breakup of the Russian Federation. For Ukraine, this is all good news. Of course, if, if Russia explodes in some kind of nuclear civil war, then all bets are off, but that's highly unlikely to happen. But in any case, the short, the long and the short of it is the worse things are in Russia and for Russia, the better they are in Ukraine and for Ukraine. Alex, thank you so much for coming on Krenitsia today. It was my pleasure, Michael. I have been speaking with Professor Alexander Motil, who is Professor of Political Science with Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and he's an expert on Soviet and post-Soviet politics. And this episode of Klinitsia has been produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Klinitsia. Until next time, that's all for now. <laughs>